Oh, the Trushan. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, there's so many lessons to be learned in that one story. And you would think with someone who'd been climbing outside as long as I have and guiding as many people that I would have learned some of those lessons. You would be mistaken. And I was mistaken. She was uh, down in Texas and she was a Russian. There you got the Trushan, right? The combination. And she'd really wanted, she, was, she seemed to be a very strong climber, you know, 513s, working on 514s, she had said. So, whoa, you know, that'd be great because I always want to climb with stronger people than me. That's how you get better. They give such great tips like, okay, when you're going for that clip, Here's what you should do. You should actually be above the clip before you're trying to clip it. Even though it seems scarier, Will, you need to do this. So I learned so many cool things by climbing the people who are stronger than me. I assumed that this would be one of those scenarios. I was mistaken, once again. I <laughs> didn't know enough about her. I didn't validate any of that stuff. I'd heard she'd been outside climbing a bunch, but I, I didn't ask uh, the friend of the friend, which was Amanda, my training partner at the time back at St. Mary's. I didn't ask her for the details. Like, how have you climbed with this girl? Do you know how strong she is? Like, so she came down and I met her and there was like some personality conflict right off the bat. And, and I remember like driving up there in the car, um, trying to get a sense for like, you know, what she likes climbing. Does she do track climbing? Does she do big wall? Does she do just sport? Top, you know, what does she do? And she's kind of like being evasive with the questions. And I'm like, that's kind of bizarre because most climbers want to like spray so hard. Like we're all spray queens deep down inside. What's we really a, are. What's a spray queen? A spray queen is someone who talks about all their climbing traits, whether you want to know them or not. And they usually do it loudly, like super loud. Whether it's a campsite, whether it's a table, in a bar, or in a car, they're ready to tell you about that one time they hopped on that 515 and made two moves into it. Now granted, those two moves were 5.9, but they'll have you know <laughs> that they hopped on that 515. Or in the case of like, oh man, I was outside, I was working so hard in my proj. And so they call those spray queens and people like go on Instagram and like hashtag the shit out of their climbing pictures. And I know some spray, I had some legitimate and they self-proclaimed spray queens. And you know, there's, there's a, a art to it, I should say, you know, it's not as bad as it sounds, but she, uh, she wasn't spray, spraying at all. She wasn't talking about anything. She was just being very quiet, which could be a sign of modesty. You might think, oh, well, she's very modest about her climbing abilities. That's, that's sometimes very refreshing. Maybe she doesn't to, know what the hell she's or maybe she doesn't know what the hell she's doing and if she knows that she mentions it she's going to get caught in that fact um, because a trip outside coaching or training someone is a very different trip than you going outside to crush something that you're at, that, that you're at your peak with that you'll be doing difficult and sometimes dangerous moves with that you need to have someone who knows what they're doing on the other end of the rope right who's, who's watching out for you you're watching out for them in good communication um, whereas we're going up we stop and at this place called Waterstone and she's talking about how you know, West Virginia West Virginia she's, she's sitting have, in the parking lot right now <laughs> we're sitting right now drinking some coffee as one does and she uh she's describing her money situations and she was having trouble I was like oh you know that's fine I can help kind of finance the camping a little bit and then she goes inside she's already has six pairs of climbing shoes I shit you not she brought six pairs of climbing shoes climbing shoes are like $180 a pair these were not cheap ones either. These were like Tessa Rosas and like mm -hmm. Team 510. She had six different pairs. She goes in and bought a pair of solutions. This is the money-starved girl. <laughs> she bought a pair, another pair of shoes that she did. In my opinion, you did not need to spend that money. Her dog was sick and like had to have surgery, so she had to go fund me for the dog. I had some thoughts <laughs> about the... I was questioning some of her financial decisions, but hey... It's not my place to do it. It's just 
it seems a bit wrong because I'm helping yeah. pay for the campsite and you bought a climbing calendar, you bought an extra, you know, draws and slings which you aren't gonna use, and you buy an extra pair of shoes, you know, over two hundred dollars worth of stuff, and I'm thinking, uh, with this two hundred dollars you could have helped pay for the campsite. But possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like doesn't sound like she's so, very good steward of her money. Nope. Might be a little might be taking advantage of you a little bit. Might be bit. taking advantage of me a little bit. But I, but that doesn't necessarily mean she's a bad rock climber. No, it know? doesn't. It doesn't. It could be indicative. <laughs> But it doesn't necessarily mean that it, that's the case. Uh, the case of being a bad rock climber is you actually being a bad rock climber, which she was, a, a horrible one, and arrogant and overconfident, which is a dangerous ratio when your life depends on someone else. So when we first started climbing, we hopped in like a 5'7", and she struggled up it. She hangdogged it. 5'7's like pretty intro um, as far as climbing goes. It's intro enough that if someone was working 5'14's, you know, off, so many grades above, they should be doing that in their sleep, blindfolded, even. Yeah. Uh, and she wasn't. She was having lots of trouble. I thought, you know, maybe that's nerves. She's climbing with someone she doesn't know as a belayer, right? So she might be very nervous. It's good to build trust up. And I can understand that, having that trust issue. Um, little did I know that I'd be on the other end of that <laughs> soon enough. And so we, I talked to her, like, how about we, you know, because we were going to work on some 512s, 513s, like, how about we, like, bump that down a grade? And just try some other things. And she was really, really not willing to budge on that. Like, no, let's go hop in the 513s. <laughs> and I was like, well, um, the thing is, you struggled really hard. And like, maybe this is a trust issue and you don't feel comfortable comfortable with me yet. So let's go ahead and do this. Let me, let's just keep working some easier stuff. And she was, she was pretty resistant to that fact. And so when I hopped on to clean that route, to, to remove all my gear from it, um, she just kept shorting the rope. I pulled the rope up to clip it into the protection quick draws and she just she'd have it like locked inside her ATC I'm like um a rope and she just she's like your rope is too thick I'm like it's it's a really thin rope actually it's uh it's meant for this reason exactly she's like it, well, it's, it's a bad brand well it's Petzl which is one of the main brands for climbing for industrial and commercial uses how would you stop giving excuses and just tell me that, that you're having some trouble down there and she just would not like admit it and Every time I went up, hey, I'm clipping. And I was being super vocal because I realized that this is important for us because we don't know each other to share our intentions of what one is doing because it could be dangerous otherwise, as I soon found out. And I'd go to clip, and once again, the rope. And this was once or twice. This is like seven or eight times on this climb. And I was like, okay, this is getting I'm definitely not hopping on something hard with this girl because she either doesn't trust me or she's super nervous. This is not working. And she's, she's refusing to do commands. Like She's just like... A good blame partner should know what the other person's doing. I was like, but we don't know each other. Yeah. So we should use commands because right. we don't know each yeah, other. Yeah, you should communicate so you don't die. We hopped onto a 510 a little ways down. And let me just lay out the scene for you. It's beautiful. It's sunny. We finished this easy climb. The place becomes packed, like Purdue University and all these other places. Like, There's probably 30 people around. Every climb is, is tagged. Mm-hmm. We find this one five ten C that opens up. I think it's she got the Bosch, I got the drill, some some bizarre name I'd never done before. She wanted to do it. I said, okay, you know this is your trip out here. I'm here to take you out to my local crag. Mm-hmm. And she started up it, and she just hang dog is not the word for it. Hang dog, when you hang out on the rope and your partner has your weight the whole time, you just kind of sussing out the years you climb. Generally, that's acceptable to an extent. Like an hour and thirty minutes later. I was like still in the harness. I was not getting happy. And she refused to call down commands like when she was clipping the stuff. And the way it works is 
I was at the bottom of the base and I couldn't see her. So I kept yelling at her, like, you need to tell me what you're doing because I can't see you. Right. You know, I, I don't know when you're going to clip and I can't give you as, as much slack as necessary. Yeah. And, a, and a normal climber would be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Let me make sure that my belayer, the person that has my life in my hands, knows what I'm doing so that I don't fall and hurt myself or die. Yep. And uh, I remember she couldn't finish it. She came down. And at this point in time, I realized something was up. Uh, these things are starting to add up. She, it's, no this is this is starting to make sense. Like this, she's not what she's claiming to be. This is a huge mistake on my part. Uh, not vetting, you know, through my friend, like her mm -hmm. skill level and stuff. In any other circ circumstance or situation, probably would have been an issue because, like, you go out there knowing that you're going to be climbing easier stuff with somebody who's a beginner climber. But the person that's a beginner refuses to accept that they're a beginner and does not want to like work towards that. It makes it very difficult because you're trying to teach them basic safety techniques. And they tell you they already know. Right. But yet they're exhibiting exactly what you're trying to tell them not to do. That's dangerous and hazardous to your health. You know, <laughs> uh, Locking carabiners should be locked. That's why they have a lock on them. It's not for looks. It's there for a safety feature. You know, Well, it's fine. Like You're right. 75, 80, 99% of the time it might be fine. Except for that one time right. where it matters. Which is why you have those things on your, yeah. on your, uh, <laughs> on your, your beaners. So I started climbing to clean the gear to get it off. And I, it's it was a pretty easy climb. I'm gonna be honest with you. It was a very easy climb, very smooth, and I didn't take or anything. I all inside it, and she was furious. And I don't mean like a little bit furious. She just kept shouting things up at me, and I couldn't even understand what they're saying. She was, I guess she was trying to feed me beta, and I could tell like there was a little snippiness with that. And I was like, whatever. I know what we're doing after this. We're going straight for like the five sevens, five sixes, and that's all we're doing. <laughs> we're not doing anything higher. Um, Beta is just like telling someone what the moves are about them. Yeah, just you know, saying, "Hey, this is a, a hold to your right," you know. And I was like, "I, I'm, my hands already on it. Thank you, appreciate that." Could you, could you stop telling me what how they do climb? I just want to climb it. She said, "All right, your foot's to the left." Like, thank you, I understand. Uh, so she had no problem giving me beta or the information, but she did have problem taking safety <laughs> tips. Uh, another clear indicator, and I got to the top to climb, and I grabbed onto the draws and I pulled my body in. Uh, and I said, I'm at the top. I screamed as loud as I possibly could down to the bottom. And I remember laying, just letting go and laying back in my harness. This is, so this is, uh, this is under 20 seconds. Yeah, this so, what, so what's supposed to happen when you get to the top is you tell your belayer at the top. They've taken all the slack of the rope and it's taut and you sit back and you shouldn't move anywhere. Shouldn't move anywhere. And there's a series of commands. Once again, those safety things that we were ignoring in the communication that should happen before anything occurs up there. Why? Because it's dangerous. Uh, in under under 20 seconds, probably less than 10, I got the top tip. I'm at the top, lean back, and instead of that tension that you should feel in the rope, that, that comforting feeling of being you know snug and not moving anywhere, I just started falling backwards. And the immediate thought to my mind wasn't that something wrong had happened. It was that oh, she's trying to give me a ride. Like, either she's upset at the fact that I, like, flashed the climb and uh, she's a very proud person and that can be an issue sometimes. Or she really just wants me to have, like, a little bit of fun. And I, nothing occurred to me that anything was wrong until, like, I passed the, the third clip from the top. And then I realized something's wrong here. Like Clips are, like, six to ten feet apart from each other. So he's falling 30 feet and then he keeps going. Keeps going, yeah. And then I realized, it, it's funny, they mentioned how things kind of slow down for you. And it's true. 
you I don't know if you think faster just because your memory kicks in cause, and like because you're in danger mode your, your brain's like I should remember everything about this it just seems like it you're you're going slower and whatever whatever the case is I just remember passing draw by draw on the way down all of my protection I realize I'm getting the ground's getting closer and closer and I start thinking on these things like all right realistically I'm probably not gonna die there's enough friction to the system that I'm not gonna hit terminal velocity I will probably break some legs Maybe if I try and land on my side, I only break my arm. Like this is all happening very quickly, and like maybe I could reach out and grab. Nope, no way I'm grabbing that rock. That's too fucking small. Like I could try and grab a quick draw, and it's like this is all happening. And she ends up grabbing the rope with both hands. She's already taken me off belay. Her her belay device is no longer attached to the rope. Not like she, in those ten seconds I got to the cop, she just taken me off. Like she's no longer attached to the rope yeah. in any way, shape, or form. So the the, the whole device that's supposed to keep him taut at the top she just said screw it and took it off of her took it off and so. she she caught it with her hands and if you want to see what rope burn looks like on someone's hands oh oof, i did feel for her really badly so she slowly so between the friction from the draws and the rope because uh, there's maybe nine draws i think that climb maybe a little bit less maybe eight and then with her grabbing it i was able to grab onto a um quick draw as i was falling and i Pulled my shoulder. I was able to hook into it, and I went indirect to this one piece of gear. Not ideal. I was about, I'd say, twenty feet up, twenty-five. Mm. So I fell a good fifty some feet before we. I got arrested, quote unquote. You know, and there's tons of people around. Like we're not. This is not by ourselves. Some. <laughs> this is in full view. You're, you're the, you know, fuckeries in full view of everyone, and I, I felt so bad for her because I, I instantly realized what had happened. She put her hands on the rope. Which helped save my life. Well, possibly save my life. Definitely prevent me from breaking my legs and yeah. other significant appendages. Because there's no way you're going to fall, you know, 70, 80 feet without doing some damage to your body. Sure. It'd be very unlikely. It was hard ground. There was nothing soft nearby. There's no brush to fall into. Just compacted dirt where everyone has stepped. Thousands of people have stepped on this. You know, there's there's no yeah, nothing left. Uh, mm-hmm. So I got into that draw, maybe two, three draws up. Yeah, I was in. I was indirect at this point in time, and uh, before anything had happened, I remember her shouting at me, screamed at me, "Why did you fall?" And like all of my emotion that I'd had from her not paying for the tent or anything, her spending all that money, her doing the story about doing the GoFundMe for the dog, her like all of her nasty comments in the ride up, like everything coalesced into that single moment. And the fact that she had dropped me from the top of the cliff due to lack of communication. The fact that she refused to do communication where you try to talk about before all the time. She, everything just like came together and I was so furious. I just screamed at her and I just remember saying like, I don't know where the fuck you're from but generally <laughs> our belayer doesn't do anything without being told. I just laid into it. I don't even remember. I was so upset. I don't remember what I said. I remember though it was nasty and it was <laughs> not good and everyone in the just got dead quiet and it cost the whole gorge. Like I said, there's like 30 people here and it just got completely quiet. Like, no one said anything. And I was just, I was so furious. And this guy came over and, like, took, uh, hooked him with a blade device, his own, so she could release her hands. And she went down in the water to wash her hands. Probably not the best idea, but that's what she did. And he got me down, and I was able, he took me up. And, oh, it's crazy. We had communication. And I was just like. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. And so he let me down, and I I was shaking, like. And, you know, what? I probably would have been scared for my life. 
had she not said that. I think that's probably the greatest gift she ever gave to me <laughs> because I was so angry with her. I couldn't, I didn't realize how close I was to dying or to at least breaking legs or some appendage. Yeah. All I could think about was like how stupid I was and so angry at her. I just, I was, you know how they talk about going to like white rage? I was in white rage. I wasn't willing to do physical damage, but I was definitely willing to do vocal. <laughs> I was definitely willing to do vocal and I was not having it. And so, and I remember going down, I was upset and I was, I don't know if I was going to say anything to her or not, but the first thing she said to me was, are you going to get my draws? <laughs> and I just, I just turned around and was like, you know what? This trip, this trip so hard. And so, and the guy's like, I can get your draws for you. And he was super nice. And I delayed him and he got the top, picked up all my draws and cleaned oh, it, good. came down. And, uh, and I was, at this point I was still shaking with like anger and like everyone was still super quiet. Like no one was climbing. Everyone's like hanging out. I guess waiting to see the fallout from this. <laughs> and so I just, I just said loudly, probably to no one. I was like, this should be an example to everyone that doesn't matter how many years you've been climbing. Six, ten, you can still make fucking mistakes, and I just walked <laughs> off. And I'm sure everyone from that crag has this story about this guy, <laughs> this this idiot guy, and this girl who nearly killed themselves. Rightfully so, you know. Any of you are out there? Yeah, I did. I made some horrible mistakes, and yet yeah, she she nearly killed me. Uh, the best part of this story is that that wasn't even the worst part of the trip. It got way worse. I won't won't bore him with the details, but like. That was only the beginning. I had like four more days with this person. Oh and the trip, it was just, it was horrible. And she wanted to keep climbing with those, they were nasty hands. Like, did she need to go to the hospital? She refused. The first thing I thought we were going to do is drive straight to the hospital. Because that's, that's some serious, like, third degree. Like, there was no skin left. Oh. It was disgusting. Nope, she wrapped it up in uh, tape and then tried to go crack climbing the next day. And that worked out so well. Yeah. I have one question for you. I have many answers. Did you let her belay you again? Never. Never. I gave her my Greek free. And I guess I've gotten some shade from people from saying that. But I realized that this girl was so arrogant and overconfident. Oh, by the way, she told everyone that um, I had fell and she had saved my life. She <laughs> left out the part where she had dropped me. All right. She told my, the friend of the friend, Amanda, my good friend. She's like, I was like, Will did not fall. What happened? She's like, let me talk to Will. And then... And when I realized she was telling everyone this, including, like, my close friends, I set that story straight very quickly. Like, no, no, this is a girl who claims she's climbing 513, 514, could barely make it up a 58, and uh, was way out of her depth in the league, you know, and it was my fault for not calling her out because I didn't want to call her out. I just wanted to kind of let things sort their way out, you know, like, I'll get done this trip and, like, I'll never talk to her again. Right. But, uh, yeah, and... Um, yeah, you should have just gone home after that. Should have, you know, should have just gone <laughs> home. In, in, in hindsight, when I dropped her off the airport, that was one of the happiest moments of my life. <laughs> and I know this sounds bad and mean, and it is, but I remember, like, being... I was kind of sympathetic at the end. Like, you know, I understand she's going through some stuff, and maybe this was not the trip that she planned. She definitely messed up her hands. And she did catch me, you know. I was trying to, like, rationalize myself, like, all the good things that happened from the trip, you know. And, hey, you know, we had some, some fun. And I was like, no, no, these, these were mistakes on both of our ends. And it should never have happened. Like, there should have been much more vetting on my end. I should never have, like, climbed with her outside the first time without having other people around, you know, some other safety barrier, and, like, going through the process. Do you really know who's got your end of the rope? Because accidents happen all the time, and sometimes really badly. One of my good friends, his friend is has got brain damage, 
due to climbing with a partner that he just met at the parking lot, you know, yeah. not catching him properly. Mm-hmm. So that stuff happens. And people so, lie, too, about their abilities. Yeah, Obviously. people lie about <laughs> abilities. Which I find so funny. Like, it wasn't a small, like, white lie. Like, saying, hey, you know, I, 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 yeah, I write in Java, and you can write Hello World. Yeah. Um, this is like saying you are an architect, and you've built a small sandcastle in your backyard. Like, there's... There was a level of like, she just didn't know how to belay. She just didn't know how to the sport climb. Like all that right. just cool. And I don't know how she had so many pairs of climbing shoes. I'm sure she climbed a lot. I, I am sure she, she and she's probably like a decent climber. I don't think um, she's the level that she stayed at, even even close. Mm-hmm. You know, even even now, like I'm sure she's much better. She's got the experience that's necessary now. And I hope I hope that she's out there being much safer and utilizing communication. Um, but at that at that time the trip she did not make good choices and neither did I that that was it could have been very bad it yeah. could have been very bad we, have, we were very lucky that it did not go uh, in a different direction and um, also very lucky that we just did not kill each other on the, the ride home yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure she was upset with me she was saying nasty things so obviously she did not have good feelings toward me and I had mixed feelings definitely towards mm-hmm. her by the end of the trip and yeah. she got out the, out the airplane I said have a safe flight and I meant that with all my heart <laughs> Okay, guys, welcome back. It's been a while since our pilot episode, but we've been working all summer gathering interviews from all around, from all kinds of different professions and passions, and we're ready to start a season. Stay tuned. We have a bunch of different episodes that we're going to be releasing hopefully every two weeks. Yeah, we're really excited to hear from some rock climbers, artists, librarians, writers, uh, screenwriters, and also directors this season. Yeah, we have a couple of things that we'll be releasing for a while, and uh, we hope that you'll enjoy them. Uh, so anyway, welcome to our episode about rock climbers. Rock climbing is kind of my thing. I've been doing it for, I think, nine years now. But all of my experience and technique and skill perils in comparison to Mac. Yeah. Mac is a climbing pro. You might not expect it. Um, well, maybe you would, because I have such a, like a studly, you know, jocular voice that um, I'm, a, I'm a huge outdoorsman. Matt and I went climbing, and I thought it was a good idea to go in sandals. Pretty much the first time I'd ever climbed. I, I, don't, I don't think it was, uh, it definitely wasn't a rookie mistake. It was more that he wanted to show us that even with the worst proper equipment, he could still show us all up. Yeah, definitely something you want to do when you're taking on a, a life-threatening endeavor. And so my sandal exploded while I was climbing this rock, and I went swinging to the side. Um, I saw my whole life flash before my eyes. You know, I, I'm a big, big dude, and I just knew that the guy who was belaying me was going to be, like, stumbling around everywhere. Um, he really kept his cool. I was surprised. He, didn't, he did not panic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I tried, I tried to keep going. But uh, really, really couldn't do it, and I had to go ahead and, and move on down. You know, you got higher than most people do. <laughs> I can't remember. Did Monica manage to get up higher than You know, that? I don't think she did, but I don't remember. All I remember is her hand going up her ass trying to push her up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, you know, at least she got the boost, you know. She was trying to get yeah. up on the rock. You didn't get so. a boost. I don't. I was afraid to go, <laughs> to go over there and give you a boost. I thought I was going to get squished. Yeah. <laughs> So Matt is the expert on climbing. So Matt, what is it that attracts you to this community and to this activity? What happened in your childhood to make you do this crazy <laughs> thing that could get you and your wife killed? Yeah, so I think what's true about most people in the climbing community is that, that they had a chance 
to drop everything and live out of a van and sustain themselves um, with no other commitments except to climb, they would do it. Now, there's actually a name for that. It's called a dirt bag, and it's a term <laughs> of endearment. It's, 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 it's something to achieve in life. It's not yeah. a pejorative term. Grungy so, Asheville types. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so I, I think most climbers – that's their number one obsession. They have a job, but they're always thinking about climbing. And that makes for a really great community because it's sort of understood underneath everything that this is something that we all care about a lot. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen you start conversations with climbers and, and there's an instant magnetism when yeah. you get two people who really love climbing and they just get so pumped and I totally don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I think it's something that, I don't know that many people that have, that have climbed for a really long time and then just quit because there's something that sinks in mm-hmm. and, they, and that gets you hooked. And then when you talk to other climbers, it just sort of builds on itself and you get you get to build this, this psych. So can you tell us a little bit about who Will is and who we're hearing from later? Yeah, so Will's one of my really good friends. I've known him since I was a freshman in college. He's a really strong rock climber, um, and he has a full-time job doing computer programming for the government. But he also trains harder than pretty much anyone I know and consistently competes in nationals for climbing. For both bouldering, which is bouldering is where you climb without ropes, and you climb about, I don't know, 15 feet off the ground, and there's a pad under you, and that really focuses on um, just pure strength for a few number of moves. And then he also competes in sport climbing, which is, is longer rope climbing, which is more endurance. It's sort of the difference between running a sprint and like running a 5K or something like that. Rodney is a local climbing legend in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He is responsible for establishing a lot of the boulder problems in the area, uh, particularly at Moore's Wall. And what you have to do to establish a boulder problem is first you have to go out there and find a boulder that looks climbable that nobody's done before. You have to clean it all off. You have to brush off all the moss and crap. And you don't even know really if the problem's going to go. You don't know if you're going to be able to get to the top of that thing. The lifetime of bouldering is, is it's relatively recent in comparison with other climbing, right? Yeah, so bouldering uh, really got big in the 90s, I would say, maybe. you know, But it's, it's a lot bigger now. It used to be just considered a way to train for mm-hmm. climbing really tall things. It was a way to get strong. Uh, but now it's its own sport. Yeah. You know? So he has a reputation in Chapel Hill. He's started all these problems. He's found all these boulders. Right. But um, in addition to that, he also has a gym, right? Yeah, yeah. So he has a climbing gym called Progression Climbing, which is, is where I climb at. It's been open for two and a half years now. Um, it's great. And, and there are other gyms in the area for more casual climbers. Uh, but honestly, I think the strongest people, and I don't include myself in this group because I'm not that strong of a climber, but I think the strongest people train at Progression, and, and we have a reputation in North Carolina for being a great gym to, to get good at bouldering. Yeah, um, I've been a couple of times. Yeah. One of those times, I tore my pants in half. <laughs> we have a fantastic episode for you today, and we really hope you enjoy it. Um, we'll go ahead and get the ball rolling, and we'll hear more from Will and Rodney. Welcome to Drive. Yeah, welcome. I first got into climbing when I moved to Boulder, Colorado, I think in 1996 to follow a, a friend out there. Moved in with two guys that were trad climbers, oddly enough. And they took me out climbing and it was, you know, I, I could tell immediately I was hooked. How long were you out in Boulder for? Uh, f- about four years. Just long enough to uh, fall in love with it, but also realize I couldn't afford to be there. <laughs> As a kid, I'd always been into climbing things, trees and stuff, but not serious climbing. I've been to a few of those kind of pop-up walls that you would see at 
a carnival or festival and I knew that I liked it but I never really got into climbing like on a daily basis until I got to college and uh, it's really kind of lack of things to do at <laughs> college I was like a shy kid and I didn't want to I wanted to meet people but I didn't want to go out to parties and stuff that was in my scene so I went to something that I knew I would like and love and uh, I went to the wall and just kind of fell fell in love with it in a, in a way that I hadn't fallen in love with like fishing or canoeing or being outside um, climbing just kind of called to me so they just came in one day and just never left came in day after day and I remember finally the climbing community there at St. Mary's was like hey man you've been in here every day like uh so what's your you know what's your name what did you do you've been climbing before I was like no nah, yeah and uh, that's kind of how I got started climbing was just by pure happenstance when did you start developing yourself developing climbs yourself I think that was right around the year 1999 mm-hmm. or 2000. Um, I got the bug immediately after the after the first time I was shown a boulder that hadn't been climbed. Yeah, and I, and I climbed it, which sadly I can't remember the name of that one. But <laughs> um, I got the bug for development and understood all the responsibility and, and effort that comes along with that, and and how much time it takes to get that stuff done and what a great opportunity it was. Can you talk a bit about the time it takes and like what you have to do to develop a boulder problem or a new boulder? Yeah, in particular, uh, Tsunami was the first long-term project. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you enter into that world, you know, you're not quite sure if you're going to do it or if some other people are going to do it before you. There were a couple other people that were trying it. Yeah. And uh, I remember noting that the traffic on Tsunami Boulder was picking up and so was the trash Mm. and little things being left around. Mm -hmm. Even a crash pad was left there, um, which has come up out in Colorado. It was controversial since, I guess now it's okay to to hike in a pad, but Mm -hmm. I remember noting all that stuff and like the trail being worn in and, you know, established just through that traffic and thinking, wow, you know, even then climbers weren't, they weren't as you know, plentiful as they are now, right. but you could tell how the impact of the sport, how quickly it would, it would come around and show itself. What was it about climbing that like drew you in? Uh, there's like the progression factor. <laughs> I'm an RP, RPG fan, so like anything where you have progression and you can see yourself getting better or you can improve, is it's got an addictive quality. I mean, I mean, it's why games like Pokemon Go and stuff are so popular nowadays is, you know, you have this progression, got to get more, got to get better, and Climbing has such a wide range of ways to get better. I think that's what draws me most. You can increase your technique. You can increase your endurance. You can increase your strength and power ratio. You can get better at some particular skill. And so there's a lot of barriers. Even if you're struggling in one aspect, um, okay, I'm not like the best boulder. I'm kind of plateauing. You can immediately hop over to sport climbing and increase your clipping skill, you know, and be a better sport climber just by clipping better. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an aspect that kind of drew me into his ability to get better everything and it's a social sport so yeah. you get to be social without having to like go out to a party or something when did you really get into bouldering and, and realize that that was your your deal i think what landed me into bouldering was just the convenience of not having to carry a lot of gear mm-hmm. and to be able to go out on your own yeah so uh, like i said i started rope climbing in colorado and i absolutely loved it i took a couple lead falls couple big 30 foot lead falls and that got me a little got me a little nervous about rope climbing yeah because I knew myself and how I wanted to push myself and you know I would block out the fall and not think so much about that I thought that might be a problem 
ultimately it was, you know, I herniated a disc in my neck from a fall. It, not that bouldering, tur- tur- as it turns out, bouldering is just as dangerous, <laughs> yeah. but in a different way. Mm-hmm. When did you start getting into competing? I started getting into competing my first year at the local gym. I, uh, I crushed, man. I got, I think, second or first place. for No, I got first place for beginners category and immediately did advance next year, which is the top for us at St. Mary's. And then got first place in that. Man, I was feeling like a hot shot. So I was like, I got this. And so I went out to do a a competition back when they had the friction bouldering series between Earth Tracks and Sport Rocks and whatnot. I remember going to that and like signing up for advance. Like, I got this. And I came like 16th place. (laughs) And it was like such an incredible blow to like come back, you know, from doing first place, first place and thinking you're the shit. And then like going out to the real world and like, man, I climbed my heart out and barely made 16th I was just like blown away like what and there was like 18 people in the category when I did it so <laughs> I felt you know pretty bad um, and, but on the same on the same hand while I felt bad about losing so drastically it was such a different comp result I was like hooked mm-hmm. I was so hooked like I realized like this could be a thing all these people have like special ways of doing things like they seem to have like their mindset about how they're climbing when I was first doing comps I just climbed yeah. You climb more and you climb as hard as you can. Right. And then realize there's like this whole like underlying subterranean thing where like you could study for climbs, you could get better at them, you could learn how to memorize the movement, you mm-hmm. could work on specific, you know, amount of attempts up per climb. There was so much strategy to it. And like I remember asking people, like, how did you do so good? And I don't understand. How are you so good? It's like, well, I it's like anything else you train for. You train for comp climbing. Mm-hmm. And I just like blew my mind. Yeah. I think I, I hate, I hate, hate, hate competition climbing, <laughs> and the reason so I hate funny. it is because I'm, I'm not a good enough climber. Well, this, okay. I'm, I'm a mediocre climber yeah. when it comes to bouldering, and so I'm in the intermediate category. It's intermediate men's, which is by far the most populated category. Absolutely. And so sandbag too. Right. So yeah. So I, I remember going to this competition at Sport Rock. And I did really well. It said that you had to climb between V3 and V5 to be an intermediate. And I climbed, I think, like one V6, three V5s, and a V4. And I got 18th place. Yeah. And the guy that won yeah. got like five V8s or something. So anyway, props to you. When did you start getting serious about training for nationals? I had done training one summer really hard for nationals, and I... I totally bailed. Like I was, I was really strong. I wasn't as strong as I am right now, but I was, was pretty strong. Didn't have the comp game down yet, but I trained significantly for it. And it came time to sign up for nationals, and I just bailed. It was me and Amanda, one of my friends and local climbers down in St. Mary's, and we'd been trained the whole summer. It's all we'd done. It's so we had sailed, we had climbed, and we had studied. That was it. We didn't have to do anything else, and it was great. And so we were super strong after about four months of that. And to be honest with you, like I said, it came around time, and then school picked back up, and I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. So this is why you were in college, or mm-hmm, this is why uh-huh. I was in college. I was, I'm not gonna do it. So, and I kept pushing off. Oh, you know what? I'll train harder, and I'll feel more prepared next year. Right. And, I do, and then the next year came, and actually, I was even weaker because I was doing my senior thesis. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, you know what? I'll we'll restart this. I'll do it like the next year. And the next year came, and I was living on a boat. I was like, yeah. all right, this is not the year to do it. And so finally, I remember my mom being like, either you're gonna do it or you're not gonna do it. So yeah, if you don't go for it you're never going to get better now mm-hmm. every time that you don't go other people are going they're getting that comp experience and like that cannot be underrated going in those competitions and climbing and understanding how they work is like 
the biggest one-up leg up that you have on other people. Now that I've done a few, three of them, you know, three nationals, I have a much better understanding than new people who are coming in who get like super nervous and jittery. Yeah. Even if they've been in like youth circuits, they've not popped to that level yet. So it's definitely, it's definitely a, a mind game more than anything. So I, I remember going to signing up for one and be like, it's sport climbing. Uh, that's not my thing, but uh, I need to do this. And so I remember like somehow scraping together the money and then my brother helping pay for my ticket, uh, the plane ticket out there. My mom helping uh, pay for the kind of nationals fees, which is like 150 bucks or something. Plus you got your hotels you got to stay at, plus you got your you know membership right. fees. So there was like a few fees tacked on and all said and done, you know, with tickets and like hotels, it's like a grand or two. So like, it's not like a small commitment. Mm -hmm. If you do ahead of time, all of that stuff's cheaper because you've already bought your membership at the beginning of the year. You don't have to worry about that. You know, if you get buy your plane tickets ahead of time, you don't have to worry about outrageous prices. And I waited to like literally <laughs> three weeks before I decided yeah. and got slammed as far as uh, expenses. But uh, yeah, I remember doing that and having, uh, I didn't have that bad of a go. I was actually, there's probably 20 people who were behind me. I was like, all right, I mean, it definitely sucked, but <laughs> there's no no way around that. But I met so many cool people and I got to talk to like Sausage or Julian or like Boss Up at 1 1 and like, mm -hmm pick their brains about things and met some really good friends like Dusty Glasner one of the uh, athletes from Evolve and stuff like there are some of my lifetime friends now that I met at nationals and like at that point in time I realized I want to train for this I want to do this year round I want I don't just want to train for it I want to coach for this mm -hmm. and that's kind of how I got into uh, to coaching for climbing was do you think part of the hesitation of you part of your hesitation and waiting was was fear-based or do you think absolutely like yeah. it's definitely fear-based like you don't want to make a fool of yourself right. and you you want to like push yourself and you want to do well mm -hmm. and so you keep telling yourself if I hold off a little bit longer I can produce a better result and that's kind of like a mental lie we sell ourselves to give mm -hmm. ourselves breathing room you know like sometimes you just have to do things and it's not going to turn out great but you need to get it done uh, to get started you know right. so it's like that blank canvas fear almost where you don't you know that you're going to produce something but you're not sure if it's going to be up to par for the quality mm -hmm. like you're really afraid of it so it's just easier not to start because until you started the ability to do very well is still there and then we start then you know where you're at your baseline and that could be a very harrowing experience yeah realizing that like where your weak links are you know? mm -hmm. when did you start thinking about opening a climbing gym it was a while ago it was during the vertical edge years so you know 2005 i saw what they were doing and you know i liked what they were doing i thought of uh you know what that would be like for me and you know to, to move into that as a career path. And certainly I was passionate enough about route setting to uh, to do that. And that's when I started thinking about it. At that time, there was no Triangle Rock Club. It was just Vertical Edge. You know, didn't quite grasp the, the realm of possibilities of just having a bouldering gym right, yeah. like we have now. As soon as I just figured out that a bouldering gym was a possibility, yeah. I fell in love with that idea. What did it take to open this place? Yeah, it took, uh, I knew it was going to take some money, but it took more time than, than I thought. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of politics dealing with the city and the permitting department, you know, working with people that were originally involved that are no longer involved and all the drama that went along with that. Mm -hmm. um, that was unexpected. Certainly I'd heard stories about that, but that was my first mm -hmm. time experiencing all that. 
it took a lot of effort, mental effort, and, and just keeping my head down and knowing my goal and sticking to it, you know, regardless of what bumps I hit along the way. Tell me about your training. So I have a coach now. Um, he's a U.S. certified boxing coach, strangely enough, but he works for my conditioning for climbing. He's actually my dad. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's Pops, which is funny. So he uh, helps train and coach at College Park for boxing and some local gyms around here. And that's kind of your, so he's already paid his uh, USA coaching membership fee. Mm-hmm. And that covers climbing too. It covers oh, like cool. any of the sports within that, that realm. Um, so he didn't, ha- it wasn't like he had to, you know, go do something else. There were some stipulations like as far as first aid, you know, uh, sexual harassment course, things that you had to kind of tick off mm-hmm. uh, before you get CPR, all that sort of stuff. But he'd done most of those. And so I remember after doing my first Boulder Nationals in Madison being like, oh man, you know, I, had some good comp game and like actually I was incredibly cool as far as like the the head game for it but I've really struggled and like not have enough strength and I was like you know I I think training technique would be more beneficial but I'm also not denying that being stronger would give me a greater confidence boost you know walking even if I didn't know what to do for the move if I had the strength to hold out a little bit longer on those holes yeah. or just hang out and work it out and not start freaking about like getting pumped mm-hmm. that'd make a huge difference and so I start talking to now my coach my dad and he's like you know have you tried like you know a lot of uh, strength endurance training and stuff you know things that I would do for my box he's like no I haven't so that's kind of how we started doing it and getting really serious and I had Hester and my good friends down in Southern Maryland yeah, a local down there who's a crusher and she wanted to kind of get stronger too, so we just kind of like, well, let's go ahead and pack up and start training together. Mm-hmm. And then we just started getting into this routine and then having, you know, uh, uh, spreadsheets, which became applications, which became like, okay, what are you eating today? Give me your calorie count. And then uh, start working and focusing on weight. And then we got a lot more into, involved into it, like, you know, going to get bod pods for body fat percentage and doing your VO2 max and seeing kind of where our baselines for a lot of this stuff was. And why that was a little bit expensive, like tuna bucks for some of those things, uh, all combined. They were helpful in like articulating where we need to get our training because before you're kind of guessing, I guess. Mm-hmm. You're taking tallies of like how many pull-ups you're doing and stuff, but you don't have a progression. You just you don't see the overall big picture view of things. So by taking these kind of programs and stuff, I can now look and say, okay, this is how many pull-ups I, I was able to do with 90 pounds. This is how many pull-ups I can do now with 90 pounds, you know. Yeah. And so you can see that increase over time. Um, and as far as, like, body fat percentages, it just helps you stay on track. Because if you're counting calories and you don't know how much you're actually using per day, like your base uh, metabolic rate, then you're just kind of shooting blindly. Like, I think I'm using 2,500. So once you have solid numbers to start tracking to, you can focus on a reasonable attainable goals and say mm-hmm. I want to be able to do not like 5,000 pull-ups a day you can say something like you know what I'd like to be able to do five pull-ups with 90 pounds attached to me or 100 pounds or maybe I want to do one pull-up with like 130 pounds yeah. and you can set your training at, at percentages of that then to prevent overuse injury and that's huge because those are my biggest injuries are like fingers and stuff where you put too much weight and do too much work or too much you know load uh, on your fingers or on your hands or knees or anything mm-hmm. and so having these percentages like made it feel more serious as a, as training. Right. Does it make sense? Yeah. Like you felt like I don't know, I would say professional, but you felt like you know we're taking this seriously. We're mm-hmm. doing, we're tracking this stuff. We're making yeah. serious They're progress. Setting goals, which yeah, helps. exactly. It's, it helps a lot rather than what we were doing before back when I was training with Amanda the first time for nationals was you just you just go to the gym and like you climb hard, but that's not training the same aspect mm-hmm. because we're not working on things. We're just like climbing and doing some pull ups and stuff and like. Right. 
just broadly doing yeah. exercises. Whereas these are we have specific exercises we do in certain days. Mm-hmm. We have specific like you know ankle strengthening exercises that we do that come from bar classes and ballet classes yeah. that we've kind of adopted or things with boxing. Um, so we've kind of pulled from different disciplines because they have surprisingly very disciplined sports yeah. coaching and climbing doesn't. Like I saw so many different coaches with so many different methods when right. they're nationals. Well, I wonder if some of that is that boxing and ballet have just been around for so much longer than competition climbing. You know, I, I, like I would say that's still, probably one hundred percent. People are still trying to figure out how it all works. So it's been open for what, like two and a half years now, or so? Yeah. Almost two and a half years. Yeah, March two thousand fourteen. Yeah, it's packed every Tuesday, Thursday night. I come in here. It seems successful. What What do you think makes it? so successful like what do you think I think it has a really strong core of people what do you what do you think makes people keep coming back I think it's the environment that we created um, it's it's just big enough to fit you know that group of people in here but uh, it's small enough where it feels a little more intimate and you know we try to treat members with respect and not you know like I, I know all their names and um ask some questions about the routes, you know, hey, what do you think about this or that, and try to keep it more personal and the philosophy of being a little more relaxed, but also at the same time, wanting core climbers in here and, and, and people that climb indoors and outdoors and understand, you know, what that means and, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, building a community of people that, you know, like to be around each other and not be, feel competitive like some of the other gyms yeah. that, around the country. It was one of your goals when you made this gym to be more of a training for outside kind of place instead of like a, I don't know, I feel like a lot of gyms are, are focused on competition, like indoor competition kind of stuff. Yeah, that was our vision. Get people stronger, create a training facility where we could grow the sport and people could grow individually and, and get better at whatever it was that they were trying to achieve. And building the youth programs, the youth team, like that's really, you know, a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. always wanted a, a very large successful competitive youth team mm-hmm. that approached it in the right way um, and that's starting to grow now we've been through several years of that and it, it takes a long time to build to the point to, to where we are now where we think we can you know grow grow that idea I will keep doing the competition style till I'm no longer even close to being competitive uh, and if I get better that's great if I get worse that's uh, that happens too mm-hmm. I'll keep doing it because I like the aspect of coaching and the only way to coach for climbing is to know what you're doing you know like my coach is great for strength and core conditioning right that's awesome but he's not a climbing coach I don't want to give anyone that aspect like he trains me in the fundamentals of of movement or having you know preventing injury through antagonistic muscle training he does not teach me better technique than climbing does that make Mm -hmm. sense yeah I teach my kids better technique than climbing because I climb in uh, competitions too so I'll continue to do it even after I'm no longer competitive I probably won't do open categories anymore. Mm-hmm. I probably won't be winning lots of prizes like I am right now from competitions. I won't make in first place. I'll mostly just be doing going to competitions for the fun, for the aspect community, and so that I can keep on top of like new styles of setting, mm-hmm. what new holds you're up, what's going on as far as the rules and regulations, you know. And I know that a lot more because you can read the rule book, right? Black tape means no cross, no touch. Red tape means you can cross open flag, you just can't touch holds. But until you're actually climbing, that sinks in you know those rules become solidified because mm-hmm. as i'm climbing i realize don't touch the black tape right you know that you'll disqualify yourself from that climb whereas if you were like read the rule book you might be like okay oh yeah um forgot something i'm missing uh it doesn't matter you just keep going you know 
but when you're a climber, you know those key aspects. Yeah. Like, hey, two hands, two seconds, top the climb, you know, or this one climb is a running jump start. You've got to remember that you have to show control in the first hole before you start moving. Mm-hmm. Like D Woods during nationals had like four attempts on this problem because he didn't understand the start of it, and like he didn't show control in the start, and like that was frustrating for him. Like that's so easy to make though, especially as a coach if you're not in, if you don't know that being an issue. Right. Um, it's hard to. So I'll probably continue climbing for as long as I possibly can until my body gives out yeah. and uh, I'll still do competitions I'll probably do the masters category when I get that old yeah. and just be like that old dude hanging out mm-hmm. trying to crush you know maybe I can show up a few of the youngins that's the goal yeah you, <laughs> that's that's the goal right there show up the youngins let's say 30 years from now so you're like yeah you're pushing 60 what do you think your climbing goal do you think you will have climbing goals then like what what's what what do you think is the end end of this of to this make crazy life Everything light and easy as far as climbing is concerned. So to have such a wide range of knowledge that's ingrained, those neural pathways have been so worked over and over again that there's very little thought required to do it. I can mm-hmm. just make things feel easy. I like that. I like the feeling of making everything light. Yeah. You just, you're, like I said, when you get better technique, your footwork, and you climb up something like that 5'8", we were doing that, that crack climb, zag, and yeah. it just felt like it flowed. And I was like, wow, you know, this is so different than my first time, where I struggled on it for like 45 minutes. I don't remember if I even finished it the first time. I just remember the complete struggle. Like, right. this was unknown to me. Like, I don't know what to do here. There's just a crack. There's no, like, holes. What, what am I doing? Um, so I that's my ultimate goal is to make things light when I'm, you know, 30 years from now and I'm, I'm old and haggard. Um, and continue teaching new generations of climbing and imparting that sort of knowledge. You know, if if I can tell people about the Trushan and what <laughs> the importance of knowing your Blair then maybe I'll save someone's life. Well, yeah. Maybe I'll save someone's legs, you know, or just prevent a very awkward trip home. Mm-hmm. How about that? Let's start with that. Prevent a very awkward trip home where two people are very angry at each other, you know, <laughs> because that's that could happen. Working on a, a second location now, unfortunately not in the state. Locally here, I want to expand either at this location or move the whole business to another spot where we can expand. Definitely we've got the time and vision to move beyond the 6,000 square feet that we have now. What about you personally? Like with climbing, do you do you have like long-term goals for yourself for climbing? Like where do you see yourself? Long-term goals? Yeah, I um, at this point just want to stay healthy with joints and fingers and stuff like that. I did achieve a personal goal this last season, so taking a step back and seeing what my next goal is. But continuing to train, you know, I'm, I'm still very excited to develop new boulders, specifically, you know, wanting to get involved in some development out of state. I guess just in general, you know, for people that want to do something that or, or follow their passion into career, the advice I can offer is just to stay focused on that and not let go of that because life tries to get in the way and you know you can easily get distracted and maybe get discouraged and and think that it's not possible or or what's it going to be like when I get there I think it's easy it's it's possible to retain the passion throughout your career of doing that even though it changes once it comes to fruition you know for example a chef that loves cooking and works for a restaurant and it kills his passion mm-hmm. because he's being overworked or or specifically to climbing like route setting route setters often lose the passion for route setting after setting for commercial gym and stuff like that if you truly love something sticking with it is it's a great thing you know through all the hurdles it's worth it at the end to stay focused so those are some lovely parting words from Rodney, I think really capturing what we're trying to get with this podcast about 
pursuing your dreams, pursuing your passion, regardless of the challenges that might pop up. Yeah, so thank you guys so much for listening. Please, please tell your friends about this. You can follow us on Twitter at drive underscore podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram. And uh, if you have trouble finding any of those, you can just go to drivepodcast.com and follow the links from there. In addition to that, on our website, you can find a donate button, which you know will send us some money that we can get to get better recording equipment, uh, better software to record on and to edit our episodes, possibly pay my cousin for the logos that he did. Yeah, and you know what? Donating will benefit you all because getting better software and better recording equipment means that we can produce episodes a whole lot faster. Uh, thanks for listening so much. This has been Drive. Have a good week.